Serial Killing a Podcast is researched, written, produced, and hosted by me, Alyssa Carroll. This is an independent production, no network, no contracts, and I need your support. Please subscribe, follow on my socials linked below, or go to my Patreon to show your support. Thank you so much. Fifteen years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am evil. Not a hundred percent, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode and who also get early access to the podcasts. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. Today's podcast was voted for by patrons and will be on the serial killer, Tony Costa. So Anton Charles, or Tony Costa, was born on August 2nd, 1944 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And again, Mr. Costa was born during the very end of World War II, and we talk about that a lot. So let's skip the history for just this one. So, Tony's father was Anton Fanesca Costa. He was born in 1909 on an island in the Atlantic off of the coast of Portugal. He died a hero during World War II at just 36 years old. He was in the Navy with the rank of carpenter's mate. Now, the responsibilities of a carpenter's mate includes maintaining the ship ventilation, watertight control, painting, and drainage. During the era of wooden ships, carpenter's mates were charged with maintaining the integrity of the ship's hull. He had just saved a shipmate from drowning when he hit his head rather hard on a coral reef and he ended up drowning. And this is all the information that I could find out about him. Tony's mother, Cecilia Bent Costa, was born and raised 1908 in Provincetown, Massachusetts. She was the fifth child out of 11. Six of her siblings died in infancy and one in early childhood. Now Anton and Cecilia married in 1928 at 19 and 20 years old respectively. They had no children for 16 years. Cecilia finally got pregnant at 36. Anton shipped off to war of course and then that was that. Cecilia remarried to a man named Joseph Bonaviri just weeks before their son Vincent was born in 1946, so she was pregnant prior to marriage. Now, I couldn't find anything really about Joseph or even Vinny for that matter, other than Joseph worked in construction and he had a masonry business. And really, there's not a ton of information on Tony's very early life. But sources stated that he was not a very well-disciplined child. He was not told no. He was actually rather spoiled. At the age of seven, 
Tony began to tell his mother that this man was entering his room at night. He later identified a photo of his late father as the man who was visiting him in the middle of the night. Now, Tony was said to be very intelligent, and he became interested in taxidermy, and he really enjoyed reading about it. Then he began killing small animals as a prepubescent, including pigeons, squirrels, and chipmunks. As he got older, the animals became bigger, and missing animals did become noticed. The family pets disappeared, and parents knew that it was Tony, and yet nothing was done. Neighbors had no proof that Tony was killing their dogs and cats, of course, but they told their children to stay away from him nonetheless. He was allegedly stuffing them and then hiding them under his bed. By the age of 13, his parents decided to, you know, try to keep him busy, and they put him in charge of the books and business correspondence for his stepfather's masonry business. Now, one source stated that, as a young boy, he would try to smother or tie up neighborhood girls. This was just one source, of course, so take that with a grain of salt. At 14, he and a neighbor girl played, quote, tie-up together. Two years later, he would visit her again. So, at 16 years old, he committed his first real act of violent crime. He broke into that same neighbor girl's apartment. He bent over her bed before she woke, and then she started screaming, right? And her screaming drove him off. Three days later, he returned and tried to drag her down the stairs of her apartment house, but the neighbors intervened. Some sources said it was her actual parents. They held him until the police arrived. So according to the book, Helltown, the untold story of a serial killer on Cape Cod, the police questioned him and Tony said, quote, I met her on Thursday, November 16th, 1961, and she gave me a key to her house and told me to come to her bedroom the next night. After I entered the house back from the back stairs, I walked up to a bedroom on the second floor and saw a girl on the bed. I was not sure that it was her. I had a flashlight and flicked it on to make sure it was her. I tapped her on the shoulder and she jumped quickly, her head hitting my elbow. She told me she was glad to see me, but I felt I shouldn't have been there and said so. I began to leave and she started to scream. I got scared and I ran out of the house, end quote. When asked about tying her up, he said, quote, It's a game that we play together. On many occasions, I have tied her hands with rope. Then I pull her underpants down just to look at her. She never hollered before. End quote. So ultimately, he was indicted on counts of assault and battery, as well as breaking and entering with the intent to commit a felony. The judge found him guilty on all counts. Now, Cecilia begged for the court's mercy. She told the judge, quote, I'll send him away from Somerville. My son just needs a fresh start somewhere else. Please give my boy a second chance, end quote. So ultimately, the judge gave him a suspended sentence and three years probation. Cecilia sent him to live with a relative in Provincetown, and he was enrolled in high school. So sources stated that this violent fantasies that he had regarding women stemmed from his idea 
that his mother should have never remarried after his father died. He idolized his father due to the bravery. He did not like the competition between him and his half-brother and stepfather. He felt, really, that they took his mother's attention away. Now, peers at the new high school found him, quote, strikingly handsome with his very dark hair, but was brooding. He came off as deeply unhappy, kind of sullen, a thinker, contemplative. You know, he didn't quite fit in. There was something kind of off about him, if you will. And he was one who considered himself an intellectual, and he always had to be right. So at night, during this time, he was collecting roadkill and taking it home in secret. And then people's cats began disappearing. He was stuffing them and adding them to his, quote, petrified collection. One photo of Tony in high school is him in the back row of a photo from drama class regarding a school play. He was described as having a flat top and a sly smile. He was just a stagehand, but everyone agreed he had lead actor looks. But his odd behavior concerned his mother, who allegedly then divorced Joseph and moved to Cape Cod to be with Tony again. It was kind of unclear in the source material if she brought younger brother Vinny with her or if he stayed with his father. And unfortunately, that is all the childhood information that I could find, and I really dug. So let's kind of get into it. So Tony lost his father as an infant, right? Mother remarried before any real memories. Joseph would have been the only father that Tony knew. We know that Cecilia told Tony of his father's selflessness and bravery when he died. Tony grew up looking at a picture of his father, believing him to be a superhero of sorts, which he kind of was, I guess, but that is a pedestal no real person could ever balance on. If we think back on other serial killers who began to be a little more, I don't know, like conscious that something was amiss within them, we see that Tony is pretty spot on with his vivid dream of his father visiting him in his sleep at seven years old. An impossibly saintly father who visits his son because, and walk with me here, perhaps Tony was beginning to feel some urges that he knew were wrong or that he just really didn't understand. But again, this is just a thought. And as with other serial killers, Tony would have been diagnosed with conduct disorder. Conduct disorder affects children and adolescents. It can have early onset before age 10, but commonly develops in adolescence, which is between the ages of 10 to 19 years. The condition is more common in boys than girls. Conduct disorder behaviors develop over time as well. Children with conduct disorder tend to be impulsive and difficult to manage. They don't seem to be concerned about the feelings of other people. The four core behaviors of conduct disorder include aggression towards people and animals and or violating others' basic rights, destruction of property, deceiving, lying, and or stealing, serious violations of rules, and behaviors displayed by Tony include harming animals, blaming others for their own behaviors, breaking into houses, showing no remorse for his actions, difficulty in making and maintaining friendships and others. And 50% of kids diagnosed with conduct disorder 
will go on to be diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. And we also have the level of Cecilia didn't discipline Tony. Now, top reasons why parents might not discipline their kids include stress, or they say, you know, the kid didn't mean to, or I've been pretty busy lately, or I was hard on them yesterday, you know, kids will be kids, and I don't want to upset the child, I'm just too tired to deal with it. Kids won't listen anyway, Um, children will be upset and think that I am mean, and I'm just tired of being the bad guy. But... Children need discipline. Contrary to what some parents may mistakenly believe, children who are not regularly disciplined are not happy. In fact, failure to discipline children often results in kids who are unhappy, angry, and even resentful. To those around them, a child who is not disciplined will be unpleasant company, and a child without discipline may find it difficult to make friends. For school-age children in particular, learning how to manage their own behavior and regulate their negative impulses is particularly crucial. As elementary school-age children head into adolescence and the turbulence of the teenage years, they will be much more likely to successfully navigate challenges and temptations if they have the tools to discipline themselves. Discipline is not about creating conflict with your child or lashing out in anger. Child discipline, when done correctly with grace, is not about trying to control your child, but about showing them how to control themselves, you know, their own behavior. It is not about punishing a child for doing something wrong, but about setting clear parameters and consequences for breaking rules so that they learn how to discipline themselves. It's all about that self-regulation, guys. A child who has been taught right from wrong and has a solid sense of what is negative and positive behavior will know when they have done something wrong. They will want to behave correctly out of a desire to be a good citizen and a member of their family and society, but not because they fear the punishment. In other words, unlike my mother, I guess, you don't have to beat your children into submission. So, in April of 1963, The now 18-year-old Tony married 14-year-old Avis. She was in eighth grade. She was described as, quote, submissive. Oh, and she was also pregnant. He had been sleeping with her since she was 13 years old. She was described as tall but waifish with bony shoulders, dark shoulder-length hair, but she was considered attractive. And they did end up having three children together, Peter, then Michael, then Nicole. It was said that Tony was disappointed that his very first child was a boy and that he was, quote, depressed that his second child was also a boy. But then he was overjoyed that his third child was a girl. It was said that his daughter was his pride and joy. Now, Avis described him as passive and nice. They would later divorce his drug use cited as the reason. Now, Tony worked as a handyman or kind of carpenter in Provincetown during this time. He was kind of an odd job, jack-of-all-trades type. And even though he was married and in his 20s, he still hung out with teenagers. It was well known that he had always had pot and had a pot garden that he would often take girls to to impress them. And this garden will come in handy later. 
He considered his garden modest, as it only had two female plants. The garden was located down a long dirt road behind Pine Grove Cemetery in Truro. So the area is known as a local lover's lane, but also as a place where people walked and others hunted rabbits and other small games. So it was not unusual to hear gunfire from this section of woods. In June of 1966, he brought home two hippie girls, Bonnie Williams and Diane Federoff, with the announcement that he would be driving them to Pennsylvania, moving on alone from there to California. Later, Tony told police that he did drive the girls to Hayward, California, but they never got there. But a side note, more digging, I found out that they were actually later found alive. So in August of 1967, while hiking in the Truro woods with a female acquaintance, Tony shot her with an arrow. The girl survived, and Tony claimed that it was, you know, whoops, sorry, was an accident. By early 1968, his marriage was in shambles, and he drove to California in the latter days of January, settling briefly in San Francisco's kind of free-swinging Haight-Ashbury district. I mean, 1968, right? Girlfriend Barbara Spaulding left her child with relatives and then vanished on the day that Tony left for Massachusetts. But again, further digging found that she was later found alive. Back home in Massachusetts, Tony burglarized a doctor's office on May 17th. He stole various surgical instruments and drugs, all of it valued at $5,000. Word around the campfire was that he was doing some painting work in that office, and the doctor saw him flirting with his daughter, and he demanded that he stop flirting. Don't you touch my daughter. So he went back and stole from him. About a week later, 18-year-old Sydney Monson vanished from her home in Provincetown. Her disappearance was reported to police on June 14th. By August, Tony was divorced officially. His brand new live-in lover, Susan Perry, lasted for a week before she disappeared, September 10th. When questioned, Tony told his friends that she had, quote, gone to Mexico, but again, it was said that she was later found alive. In mid-September, Tony was arrested for driving with a suspended driver's license. Later on, in, on the 25th, he was picked up for failure to support his wife and children. He was held in custody until November. Upon release, he started spending time and sharing drugs with a woman named Christine Gallant, another habitual kind of person of the hip scene, if you will. Now, on the weekend of November 23rd, uh, Christine was found dead in her New York apartment, drowned in the bathtub after a barbiturate overdose. Two months later, in January of 1969, Patricia Walsh and Mary Ann Wysocki took an off-season trip to Cape Cod and rented a room in a cottage in Provincetown. And it just so happened to be the same cottage that Tony Costa was renting a room in. It was said he was very polite and he helped them with their bags when they arrived. They all hung out together for a few nights, you know, smoked some weed and so on. Then he moved out of the cottage the day those girls disappeared. Not a month later, Susan Perry's body was found by people looking for Patricia 
and Marianne. They found Susan dismembered into eight separate pieces. She'd been there since September, and this was February. Needless to say, she was badly decomposed. Now, sources varied as to how soon after Susan, but not long after, police found the head and torso of Marianne in a large hole not far from a cleared plot that had once grown marijuana, and we all know Tony was growing marijuana there. Not long after that, the rest of Mary Ann's body and the corpse of Patricia were discovered. These bodies also had been mutilated with a knife, although they had apparently died from gunshot wounds. Underneath them was the dismembered, decomposed corpse of Sidney Monzen. The bodies allegedly had teeth marks, and there was also allegedly signs of necrophilia after the autopsy. Around a large tree at the burial site was a rope covered in, quote, red stains and pill bottles were scattered throughout the area. Marianne's head was found in a plastic bag. Patricia was cut in half at the waist, or bisected, as we call it. Sydney was found buried under Patricia and Marianne. Some reports stated that the hearts had been removed, but this has been debated, and a lot of people have said that this really didn't happen. It's not true. Mary Ann and Patricia's car, however, which was a VW van, though some sources say it was a VW bug, was reported as abandoned near that area as well. So when the authorities got there, well, the car was gone. It was later found in a storage unit registered under Tony's name in Burlington, Vermont, of all places. And it was found out that he had previously inquired about having the car repainted. So when questioned, he haphazardly produced this suspicious bill of sale and claimed that the girls had sold it to him so they could go to Canada for an abortion. Hmm. He was, of course, immediately arrested. And his story would change several times. He would often try to blame the murders on innocent friends, and he repeatedly failed polygraph tests. He even tried to blame it on his alter ego that he named Carl. The chief of the Truro Police Department at the time was quoted as saying, quote, The press is bad, but the tourists are worse. So tourists would show up in the off-season and bring their families. They would pack these picnic lunches, and then they would bring shovels because they wanted to kind of help dig for evidence, which is apparently still happening even today. So once they had him in custody and the dirt kind of settled a bit, Tony had his first psychological evaluation at Bridgewater State Hospital. It was said that he was polite, but he refused to cooperate. The doctors diagnosed him with schizoid personality. Now, the Mayo Clinic says that schizoid personality disorder is an uncommon condition in which people avoid social activities and consistently shy away from interaction with others. They also have a limited range of emotional expression. If they have schizoid personality disorder, they may be seen as a loner or dismissive to others, and they may lack the desire or skill to form close personal relationships. Because they don't tend to show emotion, they may appear as though they don't care about others or what's going on around them. 
The cause of schizoid personality disorder is unknown, but talk therapy and in some cases medications can help. So the symptoms include a tendency toward a solitary or sheltered lifestyle, secretiveness, emotional coldness, detachment, and apathy. Affected individuals may be unable to form intimate attachments to others and simultaneously possess a rich and elaborate but exclusively internal fantasy world. Other associated features include stilted speech, a lack of deriving enjoyment from most activities, feeling as though one is an observer rather than a participant in life, an inability to tolerate emotional expectations of others, apparent indifference when praised or criticized, a degree of asexuality, and idiosyncratic moral or political beliefs. Symptoms typically start in late childhood or adolescence. The cause of schizoid personality disorder is uncertain, but there is some evidence of links and shared genetic risk between schizoid and other cluster A personality disorders, including schizophrenia. Plus, the schizoid personality disorder is considered to be a schizophrenia-like personality disorder. It is diagnosed by clinical observation, and it can be very difficult to distinguish schizoid from other mental disorders or conditions, such as autism spectrum disorder, in which they also have some overlap. So they went ahead and got him a second evaluation. And during that second psychological evaluation, it was determined that he was a, quote, sexually dangerous man capable of murder. And the psychologist declared him a modern-day Marquis de Sade, which kind of goes against the schizoid personality disorder diagnosis, don't you think? He soon confessed to murdering Mary Ann. Tony was tried and convicted of two of the murders in May of 1970. His lawyer attempted to paint him as psychotic just out of his mind, but Tony would have none of that. At the conclusion of his trial, the alleged murder gave a rational, intelligent speech to the jury that must have convinced them that he was not only a killer, but also terribly sane. The judge sentenced him to spend the rest of his life at Walpole Prison. This was in 1970. His mother died from a cerebral hemorrhage just before he was convicted. It was said that he stocked his cell with books on the occult, ritual magic, and the Satanic Bible. And then, on Sunday, May 12, 1974, a Walpole Corrections officer making a routine tear check at 8.10 p.m. discovered Tony hanging by the neck from a woven leather belt knotted around the upper bars of his cell. It was said that his eyes were bulged open, his darkly modded face was frozen into a grotesque mask. It was said that blood foamed against his gaping lips from his having bitten his tongue nearly in half. One unlaced sneaker had been kicked off during his death struggles, revealing a mended white sock. Tony had urinated down the front of his unpressed prison trousers. So, the medical examiner, Harold L. Schenker, certified that Tony or Anton Charles Costa had died of asphyxiation by hanging suicide. Tony was 29 years old.
He is buried in Provincetown in an unmarked grave next to his mother. And there are those today who still remember him. Some believe that he was actually innocent and that the real killer has never been captured. And so this is actually a pretty interesting case for me because there wasn't just a ton of information about Tony. But considering that some of the alleged victims that they were just convinced that he had killed were actually later found perfectly safe and sound. But I still believe that most likely he did murder those three girls. They were in the area where he grew his marijuana, where he liked to hang out and do drugs. Um, but it's still very interesting to think about. I don't know that I 100% agree with the schizoid personality disorder argument. He fits some of the criteria, but really not all of them. So tell me, guys, what do you think about it? What do you think about this case? Not a ton of information, I apologize, but, you know, I dug quite a bit. But I still, you know, that schizoid diagnosis is just not really sitting well with me. So those of you, give me some ideas. What do you think was going on with him? Do you think he was innocent? I, I lean towards that he was not. But tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below, or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can also come join the Facebook fan page, Serial Killing, a podcast fan page created by a beloved listener. Also check out the Mommy Issues merch that have Edmund Kemper and Gary Ridgway on the front. It's actually pretty funny. That was a fun one to do. If you haven't seen the or listened to the Mommy Issues uh, podcast, I highly recommend that. That one was a lot of fun. And outside of that, thank you so much for listening, guys because I know you could be listening to anyone else, right? But you keep choosing me, and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Uh, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer, and whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. <laughs>